fun around here with uh you know brand new baby uh, murdoch's old and senile now and on top of that we got a kitten less than two weeks ago which is my wife's idea for towns which is uh we're still adjusting having a kitten around the house and then there's a baby now and the kitten wants to just play with the infant and it can't do that so it just gets kicked out of the room all the time now it's probably wishing it was back at the fucking shelter uh how are you doing though steve <laughs> starring shelly long <laughs> Today is up until up until 4 a.m. The child just did not want to sleep and it slept all day. It's probably going to sleep all day. It, it, it slept all day today, so it'll be up all night again, I'm sure. And, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but, you know, the stage when they're not even a week old and they just cry all night and you can't figure out why. And uh, you try everything. Nothing seems to work. And... You have to just remind yourself, that's how babies are. You just keep shifting them and banging them around <laughs> until they're happy. <laughs> Precious moments. Yeah. Arms get so tired. Crook of your arm. Oh, yeah. There, staring into the darkness. Wondering where everything went wrong. <laughs> Counting the, the days until you can use a Bjorn. Yes. Because at least that frees up your hands. That's true. For a bottle yeah. and a, yeah, for a bottle and a comic book. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Whole presents a space oddity, where three guys, lifelong friends, if you will, if you will so indulge the court, um. Talk about their favorite artists, bands, acts, artists. I said artists already, but you get the gist. Um, what we do here in season two as we wind it down, talking about the man himself, the thin white duke, Mr. Ziggy Stardust, Mr. David Bowie. Um, but if you've already looked at the episode uh, heading, we're talking about someone who's adjacent to that man. And that would be Mr. Pop, Mr. Iggy Pop. And we're going to talk about Iggy Pop's second solo record he did with David Bowie producing, writing a lot of the arrangements, the music, pretty much the co-pilot to Iggy Pop in his solo stage. And that album, of course, is the 1977 album Lust for Life. Uh, which went on, the song went on to be in Train Spotting, Carnival Cruise. Um, I'm sure it was in a Tonka Trucks ad. It was ubiquitous in the 90s, in the early aughts. But this is Mark, uh, where I'm always joined with Stephen Earl and Eric Monroe. Boys, how you doing? 
Oh, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine, Mark. Happy to be here. Happy to be lusting for life. Um, and uh, uh, I don't quite have the zest for life that my partner Stephen Ch Chambers has here, but uh, I'll let him get into that. Um, Steve, how are you? Yes, I was up until 4 a.m. today dealing with an infant because my wife had a lust for life approximately nine months ago and uh, we <laughs> took that took that life outside of her body this weekend and we have an infant so I'm joining you from somewhere in between the planet Nebulon and uh, the spaceport Delirium and <laughs> I am on leave from work even though I never really get to leave work but I had to tell the EDD people today that, oh, yes, I'm definitely not working at all. So they'll be sure to pay me. And um, I hope the money gets here. Because I don't know if you guys remember this, but the way that process works is they let you say you're going to go on leave and get everything set up before the baby's here. But you can't tell them when the leave is going to start until the baby arrives. When the baby arrives, you can finish your application or your claim form. And they say, all right, we'll get back to you in 10 days. I'll be back at work in 14 days. By the time they get back to me, what if they tell me, oh, yeah, you know, you, you misplaced uh, the Q file in the uh, the 17 drawer and claim denied. And I'll be like, well, I'm out two weeks of work. You guys, you, you, do you remember that process? Oh, yeah. One of those bloodsuckers from Uncle Sam have to come by and slap the baby's butt themselves before they uh, sign off on anything. Right, guys? That's it. <laughs> yep. Even, yep, even in right. the pandemic. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure I never saw any of that money until I was back at work. Yeah, um, anyhow, that's, that's how I spent my day half awake and dealing with the bureaucrats, but also at the same time, loving living in California, the Corona capital of the world. But also, they just turned it over so you get eight weeks of paid leave if you like it. It used to be six. There you go. I'll be uh, I'll be taking right. two because we 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 both know that if I were to take eight weeks of paid time off in my job, I wouldn't have a job to go back to. So, with California hitting the top of the charts now, um, I'm kind of wondering if uh, so if there's some galaxy brain folks out there who are thinking, well, this is what happens when you have a Democrat in office as a governor and you bunch of liberals out in California. But I got to tell you. Where I live and where you guys live, I see a lot of Trump stickers. And I also see with those Trump stickers, not a whole lot of mask wearing. So, mm. you know what I'm saying? I, I feel that if uh, our dear leader, um, who obviously deserves another four, let's say four years, and then Donald Jr. then can come and uh, take over for him. Um. I know that, like, this is what you get. Look at New York and look at California. Those coastal elites reap what they sow, but they don't understand that uh, there's pockets of red all throughout California. Thankfully, land doesn't vote, and the places yeah. with cities in them do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I got to tell you, um, people, I think, jump the gun on getting haircuts a little too quickly and going out in the nightlife. Oh yeah, um, but, oh, yeah. Uh, locking and, arms and, the, and rafting down the river together. Yeah, yes, they're they're the the same people who 
want to talk about their rights and being oppressed. And all of a sudden, they're, they're typically the more antisocial types. But all of a sudden, they want to be chatty Cathy's and get out there because they're going to go suicidal if they stay inside too long. It's just exhausting. And uh, yeah, it reminds me, you know, my neighbor, I don't know where she swings when it comes to that kind of thing. But she was one of the first people that was just like, oh, my goodness, I haven't been to a restaurant in almost a month when this was all started. And uh, yeah, as soon as they halfway open things, all of a sudden she's having people over all the time and just driving me insane. And today she was nice enough to bring gifts over, but comes to my door and I'm like, I answer it without, you know, I don't know what's going on. I've been up until four and she's like a foot away from me and my dog's running outside and the stupid cat we just got's running outside and Towns is running outside and I'm trying to make sure that in case she's got anything that we're not getting it and it's just exhausting. Sounds like a jailbreak. <laughs> Half measure. Every, everybody wants to talk about how much they like Breaking Bad but they all want to forget about the scene where Mike tells Walter about Half measures. When you take a half measure, it never works out right. Everybody was a, you know, a ninny and couldn't stay inside as long as we should have. And now it's all fucked up. 100%. Reap what you sow. Um, But not us. We haven't seen hide nor hair of each other since. uh, Yeah. Jesus. Man, it's been a while. Yeah, yep. I've seen plenty been, of other. Yeah. I've seen plenty. I've seen plenty of other people. Everybody else has figured out ways around the rules. And I tell you what, uh, getting in and out of a hospital all weekend—that was a fun experience. Oh wow! Yeah, I. I mean, I miss you. I'll be honest. I miss you guys. Thankfully, we have the show. But you know, I miss. Uh, I mean, I, I. You know, be great to hug it out. But that's that's years away. <laughs> yep. That's years away. We'll be. We'll be. We'll be fine. I'd, I'll tell you the truth. This is like the most of our relationship that I need anymore. This is perfect for me. So we'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, I've been yeah, uh, I, exercising I this muscle way. for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there, was right. a, there was a time, there was a time where we used to, you know, arrange and calculate recording every one of these podcasts in person. That just seems, you want to talk about galaxy brain. I don't know what that was all about. Uh, yeah. We had not known that there was a thing called the internet available where we could just do it. <laughs> um, we thought that we'd yeah, just little bring this, listeners, like... All of all, of, all those Nine Nails episodes, we recorded all of those in a row on tapes for years. You were trying to figure <laughs> out how to release it. And then uh, then we learned about podcasts. But yeah, we, we actually started recording those in 2015. <laughs> yep. Well, and this season we did start remotely before the closures happened, but we were just uh, ahead of the curve. We just knew that uh, that people would f- Americans would fuck up eventually, and uh, so we were Look just mostly preparing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's wearing All a mask right. now. Come on, give the guy credit. Oh, that's right. He's a patriot now. I forgot that masks. He's, yeah, come on. He's in this guy. Listen, today is the day that he became the president. Truly. Finally, after three and a quarter years. <laughs> so now, since it happened, he was he was in before the lock. So we got to give him four more. I mean, that's what right. you have to. That's, that, that's the old. That's the uh, that's the way it's always been. You know what they say uh, in the beltway there is the first four years is uh, learning how to do it. And the second four years is doing it right. That's what they always say. Yep. That's uh, I mean, it's worked every time. 
All I'm saying, if Mark Marin can make a, a freaking career out of spending the first 15 to 20 minutes just, just fucking going stream of consciousness, I mean, I think we can too, right? Um, I think, yes. I think, I think we've, we've done it for... We've done it for many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not the first time. <laughs> it won't be the last, yeah, I'll 13, tell you that. 13 minutes. We have, a, <laughs> we, we have a sweet a sweet collection, a very small collection of masochists that keep coming back for more. <laughs> yes. Let's see what these Those three people? random guys have to, to say about current events that happened three weeks ago, because that's how fast we were like edit these things. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> I gotta say, I like these guys. They have a real lust for life. Speaking of which, Eric, lust for life. What happened with the recording of this album? Where did what? you meet? In a bar. In a bar. New York. In New York. <laughs> yeah. You sure? <laughs> we were both unrecognized at the time, so we had a lot to, you know, in common. But you... uh, I'd never seen Jimmy, really, but I'd heard some of his albums, and uh, it sounded like... Uh, uh, I don't know, nihilistic rock. Mm. It was nihilism. But, but that's Which true. fascinates me. Yeah. Well, I love nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> well, crazy uh iggy pop put out two albums in 1977 uh we already talked about the idiot and later that year they put out a follow-up which is uh which is crazy i didn't even know that until i started looking into this and um if you recall the idiot we covered that in earlier b-side if you haven't heard that yet check it out that was a real eye-opener for um for us and quickly uh Songs from that quickly fell into my my permanent playlist on my phone. Um, great stuff on that one. And David Bowie was heavily involved in The Idiot as far as co-writing and composing that album. And even though it sounds different than anything from the Berlin Trilogy, um, it, it has uh, f- pieces that fit into that, a lot of synth work, a lot of experimental stuff kind of folded over, layered over these um, more uh, rock pop oriented songs um, and uh, see Iggy, Iggy Pop you know what he realized after the idiot was that that album was more hit was more Bowie than him and so when they decided to do the follow-up still in Berlin the way that they recorded would be like you know during the day, Bowie would do a bunch of music and ideas and demos on cassette and then give it over to, to Iggy Pop. And at that point, Iggy didn't really have a, much to do except like throw his lyrics down. He might have a little idea and send it back to Bowie and maybe Bowie would incorporate it, maybe not, you know, whatever. 
Iggy realized if he wanted to have more of a presence on this album, and, and let's keep in mind, it was a, I haven't heard Iggy say anything negative about that relationship with Bowie. It was just that, you know, Bowie was, a was, was, you know, really quick. And obviously Iggy owed a lot to Bowie to have this opportunity. So, but this time Iggy popped and he said, and he's been quoted as saying, I realized I had to work very fast. If I, I had to work very quickly, if I was going to kind of take back my persona on this album, you know, he would come up with melody ideas, song ideas. He would have stuff waiting for Bowie to then pick up and then add stuff to instead of the other way around. Usually it was just little fragments, but it was enough to work with. And it was enough where Iggy felt like he had more of a ownership on the, on the music on this one. Um, and so, yeah, they recorded it at uh, Hansa Studio by the Wall in Berlin. And, uh, you know, they did some collaborative work on, like I was talking about, like that kind of collaborative work on initial demos and planning. Carlos Alomar was already part of the team um, and Ricky Gardner. Um, and I'm not sure who that is. Was he, has he been a part of this so far? That's just a name that's not dinging for me. He was on low. Oh, okay. So he was one of the, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was one of the, uh, the, the studio guys on low. All right. Um, and then they then they brought in the Sales Brothers, Hunt and Tony Sales on drum and bass. Leroy, boy, is that you? I thought your post-hanging days were through. Sunken eyes and full of sighs, tell no lies. And Bowie himself, like, you know, pretty much took on uh, keyboards and backing vo vocal duties um, on top of some co -composi compositional stuff. Of course, we know the Sales Brothers. Um, Mark, you may not, their name may not remind you of much because you've scrubbed that memory as we've established. You've Eternal Sunshine to the Tin Machine, but um, they were the uh, rhythm section on the tin, for the Tin Machine band. And... Um, and you can see why Bowie wanted them for Tim Machine because they're pretty strong little rhythm section on this album. Uh, but anyways, that's that's kind of their their process on building this, um, with Iggy taking much more ownership in the initial composition duties um, and and ideas for songs, um, creating lyrics early on. So he wasn't just kind of filling in the blanks between Bowie ideas. He was very much involved from the get go. So, Lust for Life. That's the uh, kind of background um, on that one. Well, the Sales Brothers were, you know, the, the, the kids of Soupy Sales. And I believe they are bumming around in some kind of like avant-garde psych bands or some such. I like to imagine that Bowie and Iggy Pop went into a small club that was Soupy Sales touring a vaudeville show. And the, his sons were... Doing in the background and that they got the juice. Yeah, they had the goods. Yeah, but you're fucking. No, you are right that Iggy Pop. You know, he he knew that David liked to work fast, so he almost felt like he had to. He he had to wait for David Bowie to go to sleep and then sneak in there to to start to work on the next day's songs that he the night before. Very quick thinker, very quick action, very active person, very sharp. I realized that I had to be quicker than him. Otherwise, who album was it going to be? You, you, I, I, I find that I find it interesting that, at, like as you said, after the idiot would had a big Bowie sheen on it, he made a conscious effort for the, for this record to to sound more like 
Iggy Pop. But you can definitely tell David Bowie's fingerprints are all over it still. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anything, it it is a uh, little bit of a departure from The Idiot. Um, just in terms... The Idiot definitely, it sounds like David Bowie um, had his fingerprints all over this one. And this one, even though David Bowie was extremely uh, involved in the recording of this and the creation of most of the songs... It just really does feel like a polished Iggy Pop record, though. Um, I hear more of his voice in here than I did on uh, The Idiot. The Idiot was more of a collaboration. This is more Iggy Pop, I think, taking the reins um, with David Bowie just kind of uh, coloring what uh, 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 Iggy Pop is laying down. Yeah, and I think this is the prototypical. I think The Idiot's a masterpiece, uh, not being hyperbolic i really think it is i think less for life set the template for the iggy pop sound that pretty much he kept in until this day um like yeah that's like i, I agree with that, that album post-pop, that post-pop depression album was really trying to be the sequel to this album i think and every record in between had some of this going on with it and that's not a problem that's uh, what he sounds like it's good stuff who, after listening to this album and then going through a lot of the Reeves-oriented David Bowie albums, and of course Tin Machine, I I put the blame of Tin Machine solely on Reeves's feet. So fuck off, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, you know we've done it. We've gone through every. You know the last recording is going to be Heroes. So we've gone through every, uh, and that that has personnel that are carried over from other records. And so at this point, we've dealt with everyone that recorded with David Bowie. And I'd have to say, yeah, the only guy that really deserves the cone of shame is uh, Reeves. Everyone else, I can I can see why they were doing it and why they try to do it, but he just uh, he just he just tried to make everything his, and I didn't like what he was peddling. Well, yeah. I, thanks to Outside, I can't ever hate him entirely, but he was more of a, of a studio player on that album as opposed to uh, one of the, uh, the the brain trusts. I mean, I'm only sort of joking. I mean, if David Bowie was able to see something in Reeves, then I guess I should appreciate that. Um, but in terms of just his overall, um, I guess, style... It just, I, I even said this in the writer's room uh, to, to these boys, is that he's, he's like a, a dentist who wants to let loose on a weekend at Cabo Wabo. <laughs> and uh, that, that's, that's his whole style. And I'm just, I am not here for it, as the and, TikTok kids would say. And, yeah, and if, if I want that very specific thing Mark just described, I listen to Van Hagar era Van Halen. You know, you're gonna get your guitar wizardry, and you're gonna get your uh, pina coladas. Absolutely, exactly. There you go. I have gone to a Cabo Wabo before. It's really not that bad. <laughs> it was in like the basement of uh, like uh, 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 South Lake Tahoe. I think it was at Harrah's or something like that. And there was an '80s uh, cover band playing, which was perfect. And uh, 
Did they play? Did they play? Why can't this be love? Um, they didn't, unfortunately. Um, there was no Van Hagar being played. Uh, it was more along the lines of uh, actually, I, when I said '80s, I meant '90s. So that's where you're hearing your um, your Toadies covers, um, your Sponge covers. Ah, you sure, know, sure. Uh, candle box. Sure. Uh, blue, you blew you, you blew the uh, the cover off season three where we go through the entire Candlebox uh, discography. All three records. Ready to go. Let's go. <laughs> Heaven, let your light shine down. All right. Isn't that Collective Eric, Soul? Hang up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Collective Soul. It's the fucking same band. They're both, they're both some, some garbage. No, it's, it's actually... I, I dispute that notion. I'm not a big Collective Soul fan, but I think Shine is a good song. Left Behind by Candlebox is not a good song. Uh, Collective Souls is a Jesus band. Just gonna, just gonna throw that out there. They and are tell you a Jesus the, band. They are a Jesus band. Plenty, there's plenty of Jesus songs that sound all right. <laughs> Absolutely. As a YouTube fan, I will say he's correct. <laughs> a good riff is a good riff. I, you know, as long as uh, as long as the words aren't, you know, there's nothing in Shine telling you to go to a, I don't know, a conversion school. So it's okay. You hear that DC talk? You're on notice. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, this is great. On the rails as right. usual. Uh, hey, how did this? How was this album received? Because I feel like I read, at least in the UK, it was a massive hit. Commercially, that it did reach number twenty-eight on their album chart, uh, which apparently made that uh, Iggy Pop's second highest performing release in that country until 2016's post-pop depression, which featured Joshua Home, Home from Queens of the Stone Age. Um, that was a good record. If you haven't checked that one out and you want to hear a little more further studies on Iggy Pop, I highly recommend that one. Uh, in the U.S., however, uh, Iggy was signed to RCA, and around that time, 1977, we experienced the death of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. So a lot of the Presley's back catalog apparently became priority, and Iggy Pop's album was apparently just lost in the shuffle in terms of the promotional cycle. So it didn't really do much in the States, but eventually, because of how strong the song Lust for Life is, and arguably the whole album, uh, it, it did finally get some success. Critically, uh, you certainly see um, a whole lot of high marks for this album. Uh, this one and The Idiot are certainly seen as his touchstones on um, his career as a solo artist if you're not looking within Stooges. Uh, but uh, a lot of contemporary reviews essentially say it's a very successful album. Pitchfork gave it a 9 out of 10. Uh, all music, which, you know, is kind of a curated thing with both fans and critics. So that's a five out of five for them. Uh, the Village Voice, A minus. Rolling Stone, of course, uh, four out of five. So it, it was seen as a really strong record. The only thing that was kind of said about it was that it was kind of straight down the middle of the plate um, coming from the Stooges and 
arguably the idiot it's a little bit more of a challenging record with a little bit more artistic and there is some stuff going on here that you know make you appreciate it but it is kind of straight down broadway if you think about it um and it refines his sound um that he had with the stooges with a little bit of bowie kind of uh, sprinkled in um so the critics liked it commercially it sold pretty well um, and then, of course, it went on to inspire and have a lot of cover versions from a lot of artists uh, of today. And we'll talk about those covers later. Yeah, and if you if you listen to this and you don't hear, like uh, when I listen to this, I any band, like I, I, I can hear Queens of the Stone Age on this album. I can hear the Strokes on this record. I can hear uh, the uh, turn of the turn of the century new metal punk band Amen on this record. I can hear. Icarus line. I can hear and you'll know us by the Queen uh, Trail of the Dead. Etc, etc, etc. You can just, you can trace back a lot of bands to this record, I think. Uh, and we'll get into it. Before we get into that first track, I did a little digging while we've been sitting here, and uh, something was telling me, yeah, the, the, the Sales Brothers didn't just come out of nowhere. And that, that was, the, you know, they were, they were bumming around Detroit in their own bands, but yeah, what uh, they they played with Todd Rundgren. Rud, I can never pronounce his Rundgren, name. Rundgren, yeah. Todd Rundgren before joining up with uh, Iggy and uh, David Bowie. They met David Bowie around the Ziggy Stardust years, and a few years later they called him up. And yeah, that's who that's who they were working with. So there you go. And uh, right now, uh, Hunt Sales in the modern day has an eye patch. Kind of like the guy from Kansas also has an eye patch. Yeah, they both. They're actually kind of dressed similar. Yeah, wearing a <laughs> just wearing a black cowboy hat and some kind of leather overshirt. Good for him. Definitely a choose your fighter kind of situation here. You know, if uh, you're in the menu page of rock and roll has beens, which they should go to ground to kind of like making a Def Jam version of a fighting uh, album or a fighting video game. That'd be awesome. Who who would our who would our fighters be? Mark, you go first since you brought it up. Who would you who would you who's your avatar in that situation? Ooh, your has uh, been rock fighter. My has been rock fighter, and they have to be alive. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, I mean it's arguable. I, 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 it's got to be Steve Perry if he's still li- around and kicking. <laughs> <laughs> he's got this shriek. F- like finishing move. Oh yeah, that will uh, make heads explode. But yeah, Steve Perry's my guy. I feel like Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins would be like a like a Balrog type, with just all it is is punches, just very thick, muscly punches. I I, I don't think Henry Rollins fits into what we're doing here, though. Okay. Yeah. You know, was Henry, I mean, was was Henry ever really? Well, we're talking about. You know your Boston's, your uh, Kansas's, okay. your uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. your REOs, speedwagons, your, your REO Wagon. speedwagons. <laughs> so Eric, who do you who do you pick? Oh boy, uh, Steve, why don't you go before me so I can actually think about this? I was not prepared. It's not my. Uh... Oh god! Well, god gonna... damn it! Yeah, well, I, I was gonna say the uh, the the I'm gonna go obscure here, in the lead singer of the Atlanta rhythm section. Imaginary lover You're mine Anytime Imaginary lover Oh yeah 
Princess. Um, they have that. They have that hit song, "Imaginary Lover," and the you know the idea of the imaginary lover is someone that can uh, sneak in and out of the room, so he has like invisibility powers. And if you're unfamiliar with that song, I implore you to look it up. Imaginary Lover. Sure. Atlanta Rhythm Section. That sounds good. Or and uh, yeah, these days, these these days when they're playing the uh, the Idaho Potato Blast or whatever kind of state <laughs> fairs going on, they uh, they all look the part. You know, they're some of them are wearing suspenders and they really shouldn't be, and uh, others are wearing some some things that are in between a duster and a cape. So I. I, I, this is this choice will also not fit into your theme, and I'm sorry, I'm just not quick-witted enough. But uh, I'll choose Chubby Checker, and he'll just he and he's still kicking, and he'll uh, just twist into a tornado and use a tornado move uh, to to blow you off the the, the fighting ground. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll spot you one, Eric. How about Randy Bachman from Bachman Turner Overdrive? What does he do? There you what, go. Who the fuck is that? What does he do? What's his? What's his? I'm trying to think of people that have a thing. What's his thing? I don't. I, I I think Eric's missing. He he doesn't get the premise of what we're trying to do here. I know. Eric, have you seen the Kansas photo? No. Have you seen the photo of the Kansas guy? Of course not. They're standing out in a cornfield, and they really look like a choose your fighter situation. <laughs> <laughs> not looking so great. I, I I laughed at that particular photograph for a good ten minutes. Oh. And I feel like we riffed on that as a group. For another twenty. Oh, okay, okay. I remember now. I, I thought those were the uh, the fields of the Nephilim. I, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. I, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Okay. You know, you could have just said your dad, Eric. It's true. He's a uh, he's yeah he's he's been he's been chewed up and spit out by the rock industry. Yeah, he's ready to fight. He's, he's ready to fight. <laughs> no, that's it. That's the episode, folks. <laughs> we uh, did it. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that we brought you closer to pod. Mission accomplished. <laughs> All right. Yeah, less for life. Let's let's hear a clip of a song that none of us have ever heard before. Fancy yourself. It's 1995, and the opening clang and bang of Lustre Life is playing. And in the distance, you see a, a young youth running towards you, uh, a little bit out of focus. And as they get nearer, you're like, oh, that's not the unmistakable jawline of Ian McGregor. 
That's Mark Brandstad, who just snatched this tape cassette from a local record store and is running off. <laughs> that is the truth. Oh, boy. That is the origin story of me with that song. That is true. Uh, besides seeing the alb- or the movie Trainspotting in an empty theater at the Sunrise Mall with only three other people, um, it, was, uh, it was great. And then, of course, I had to have that soundtrack. And uh, just those opening drums, man, it, they could make you run through a wall. Um, they just put so much energy and juice in you. You just feel like you can do anything. Um, and that's what I did. I went and got the old five-finger discount at a, uh, at a record store that is no longer avail- uh, around. Yeah, statue limitations, you know, you can't get... I don't think they can pop you for this, Mark. Mark. You, exactly. you, so you're saying you single-handedly uh, destroyed a, a mom-and-pop record shore, store by stealing from them. Pilfering <laughs> your right. profit for years. That set the dominoes in motion of why they had to close their doors a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> it was people like me that just uh, was trying to make a fast buck. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know... And that, that led to, you know, yeah, you know, years later, uh, the owners of that record store, their son fell into drug addiction, specifically heroin, and uh, lived a life that is reflected in the movie Train Spotting, from which this movie was part of the soundtrack. And it was very full circle. You fulfilled some kind of dark tower, circular uh, karma thing there. Ka. So it's Ka. Well done. Spokes on a wheel. Yeah, but I can't. I can't think of a. Uh, I mean, I feel like this song was almost recorded twenty years before the reason it was recorded for. I there's a few movie song correlations that are as strongly bound in my mind in the sound of the song and what the song is used for is less for life and train spotting. It's just they're just uh, in perfect unison as. Uh, Subject matter, like the sound of the song, feels like the way it looks in the movie. Everything about it just clicks perfectly. It's uh, it's amazing. You don't get that very yeah, you're often. You're right. You're right. I mean, you got this, and then you got you got this, and then you got the Ghostbusters theme song. That's it. Those are the two. <laughs> End of list. Of course, you've got uh, you've got. I, I'm sorry, but honorable mention: the Dragnet rap and Wild Wild West. But yeah, pretty much got it. Got it. Um, the. Uh, you're absolutely right about its connection to train spotting. Um, I actually didn't see train spotting until like the early aughts. I missed it in its heyday. Uh, but I knew like from trailers, I, I was still paying attention to music. I was reading my Rolling Stones and uh, this is, you know, in all of the ads. And then even like the MTV Awards, Iggy Pop came out and played this song that year because it just had a resurgence. It had a moment, as they say, when train spotting came out again. And, uh, so, so, you know, when I think of Iggy Pop for many, many years, this was the song I thought of. And if somebody said Iggy Pop, this is the song I thought about. Yeah, I think it might be basic of me to say this, but uh, this might be my favorite Iggy Pop song of all time. I mean, there is definitely some contenders right around the corner tapping on shoulders. But uh, to Eric's point, when I think of Iggy Pop, I don't think of Wild One. Um, I don't think of <laughs> the passenger. I don't think of uh, Sister Midnight or Nightclubbin, even though those are all fantastic songs. 
but it's it's this one apparently that just is uh it puts its hooks in you and it is such a upbeat sounding song for a lyrically a pretty depraved song and i i just got to tip my hat for him kind of playing uh both sides if you will yeah yeah i mean but sometimes if it if it walks if it walks like a duck quacks like a duck it's a duck and this song is a very great song i think that's a very no reason why it shouldn't be someone's favorite iggy pop song much like i said it's the you know it's tied to train spotting so much i feel in the look and the shape and the feel of it I feel like it is the quintessential Iggy Pop song. This song kind of represents everything the guy's about, from the lyrical content to just the way it sounds, the the forward momentum of it, the the swagger it has. Um, it's just a great song. And the production's fantastic. And just, you know, it kind of opens up like a song in progress. It does. Everything, you know, it, it really, like, you're like, oh, what's going on here? Even though it opens up like a song in progress, so they still add the instrumentation on top of it. Like the bass comes in, that little guitar strum starts, everything starts clicking together, and it's uh, it's already like a well-oiled machine, and they just pour some some nitro on it, and uh, you know by the time you get to that uh, that little piano slide, before any vocals have started, it's just it's already just a great great you can song. Give, you can give Belly um, some credit credit for that nah, piano that, slide right there. That's yeah, that's him. You can give yes, I I'll give him. I tell you what, Eric, I'll give him the credit for most of the pianos in this record because he plays all of them. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, and you can definitely hear some of his little Richard influences on that yeah, piano slide yeah. there. Um, I think you get a lot of the, you get this. This album does have a lot of a, a, a little Richard. It has a some. Um, oh goodness gracious, Jerry Lee Lewis on it, and I used to think that you know Loggy e. Pop is that it has dirty rock and roll, rock and roll. This album's very rock and roll. Uh, it's great. Uh, other other aspects of of this opening track, I'm a big fan of, is there's a little guitar flourish in the middle of the dun 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 dun, dun that I never noticed before until listening to it for homework for this album. Uh, there's uh, I don't know why David Bowie chooses to do like a Muppet voice for his Less for Life backup <laughs> vocals, but I like it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's uh, uh the the song is just has like a steady. It has steady rising action through the entire song. It never slows down. The, the bass lines, superb. The, the, the sales, Hunt sales towards the end of the track, he starts crashing all these cymbals and just as the song closes, I wouldn't mind if it goes on for another four minutes. Uh, like I, think, I think David Bowie is probably jealous of this song that he didn't use it for one of his albums. And that's not, not necessarily because I don't think these Iggy Pop songs especially on this record would fit on any David Bowie album that I could think of. And actually we'll learn that uh, when he does tonight, a few years later, but uh, this song is so good. I'm sure he was like, Oh man, I could, I could do some damage with this. It's just such a big American sounding song. (laughs) Says says the biggest tonight apologist I've ever met in my life. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm speaking more of a neighborhood threat, but (laughs) also the version of tonight. The the reason, the reason uh, I like, the other tonight and this tonight, uh, they're totally different songs. Right. Right. Uh, I, 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 if you didn't, you know, there's, there's there, there, uh, if you tried to redo this track in the, uh, and the Calypso sound, I, that would be, oh. that would have been a car crash. <laughs> I just imagined what that would sound like right there. Very good. 
I mean, uh, not to uh, interrupt Eric because it sounds like he was winding up. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, usually when I, that's usually when I try to interrupt him the most. Exactly. Uh, I just figured I'd just slide right in there. This song has such a, like a little jaunty swagger to it. It almost, in my mind, could have easily replaced uh, the quintessential and iconic scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Instead of him dancing to tequila, he could have been dancing to this song. <laughs> oh, that's um, a that's a YouTube video waiting to happen. Mark, get on it. <laughs> I mean, it's well, but Mark, what, I, what what you have to do is um, that's a pretty bold statement. And ultimately, you're going to have to go back to Cabo and get Sammy Hagar to do the final verdict, if that's okay. That's true. I mean, uh, yeah, Mas Tequila, as uh, old Hagman would say. Um, but yeah, that's this song is just, uh, like I said, um, it's as soon as you put it on, um, you're just already tapping your toe and being like, yeah, all right. This is making me feel good. And even like with the video that was eventually released, I think, around the train spotting years, um, you got Iggy kind of just uh, doing the chicken dance um, in front of a just a, basically a white room, um, looking, you know, uh, like Iggy does in his current final form. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good time. It's a very good time. That man knows how to play it for the camera. Um, but yeah, that's all my notes that I have on this uh, this particular song. Eric, you have anything else you want to add? Uh, yeah, I just, you know, I echo what you say uh, about... I, it's not my favorite Iggy Pop song, but it is a definitive Iggy Pop song. And it's my favorite um, song on this album. It's just undeniable. The energy, um, it is a all the evidence you would ever need to defend the Sales Brothers, no matter what happened later. It's uh, the tour de force from the rhythm section. I love any song with like a minute 10 of just instruments before the song actually, before the, the engine turns over, the car starts up. That's, that's all right with me. I like that. Um, and yeah, lyrically, it is very interesting. It's, it is very like, it's autobiographical, but it's not. It's referencing a character, um, Johnny, Donnie Yen, from uh, uh, William S. Burroughs' poem about like, like uh, the guy that's like the life of the party. Everybody, you know, loves having him around. He's just an absolute lush and drug addict, but every, he has such a good time. And, um, but nobody takes him seriously and he's the fucking clown. And, um, and, it, and it's that kind of moment. It was like, do I want to be a clown? Um, or, uh, eh, fuck it, it's fun. In the moment, it's fun enough, I'll just go with it. And so it's just like, it's kind of accepting who you are and then being proud of uh, what makes that that fun. And um, and the song, and it, you're absolutely right, the song feels exactly that way. That it just feels like like somebody completely caught up in the, in, in the, in the moment uh, and the fun they're having. And um, yeah, so anyways. And I think Iggy Pop identifies, obviously, obviously, what we talked about with that character, Donnie Yen. And, um, and, uh, yeah. So, anyways, uh, he really identifies that cartoon, uh, village drunk, but people love having him around until, until he goes too far. 
<laughs> but it's up until that moment that we're celebrating, and that's what the song's about. I love that line, I'm worth a million in prizes. That's what I was going to add is like, his vocal delivery is not always consistent, and that's okay. It's Iggy Pop. He's a sloppy rock and roll guy. Even on our favorite, you know, like our favorite songs on any of the other albums, it's not consistent all the way through. He has his moments where his voice cracks, where he doesn't hit the note just right, but that's okay because it, it fits the sloppy pa pastiche of the song. But this one, he is firing on all the cylinders all the way. He hits every note he tries to, and he has a little sneer in his voice. He has a he has a swagger in his voice that just works. Yeah, I think he. Uh, I think throughout his career, he pulls it together when he needs to, but he doesn't always need to. Sh he knows that he doesn't always need to go to that gear. So I, I agree with you there. All right. Well. All right. Well. <laughs> Sixteen. Mark, I have a fever. What do I need? You need you need more cowbell, Steve. I know that. best cowbell you're going to find this side of uh, that SNL skit. And I I, I think that uh, this album sequenced very well. I think coming out of a song like Lust for Life that's just complete momentum, you don't want to completely slow it down. You want to take it down a step. Opening up with a track that's all cowbell makes perfect sense to me. And goes into just a, a wonderful sneering kick drum beat that permeates throughout the song. This, this this track, the 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 pace of this track and also the 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 vocal tone, this is definitely one of those tracks where I'm really hearing like the strokes in it. Uh, this is just uh, the proto strokes. This is what they listen to when they want to make a band, and it forward it, it prioritizes a steady momentum throughout the entire song, which I respect. Uh, Romstein is very good at that. Sometimes they will lock into a drum beat and they will carry it through the entire song. 16. Um, this is the uh, song that apparently was solely written by Iggy Pop. Everyone else had uh, David Bowie taking, taking the reins. Um, but I enjoy the dirty guitar tone. Um, it punctuates the song throughout. It does have that 70s rock feel with... You got cowbell for days. Um, at first, I thought it was a little bit... Uh, like a rough draft brought to life a little too early, but on the second listen is when it really started to hook me. Um, so it's a good song. You know, it, it is. It's uh, It's got that kind of, you know, let's be honest here, during the 70s uh, and underage groupies, it was not necessarily taboo. Um, I'm not obviously condoning that behavior, but it is just something that uh, rock stars tended to get a little uh, little frisky with. I, I don't know how else to put it. And I'm not minimizing that at all. I'm just saying that it, it happened, right? Yeah, I mean, I think for that reason, this song is very low on the list for me on this album. 
um, just because it's hard to consolidate that. It, you're absolutely right, though. It's part of the culture. I mean, what the fuck are we supposed to do? I mean, we're not going to apparently and, and apparently in very many states in the, in the United States, it was very legal to have those relationships with 16 year olds. Um, once again, not condoning it. Um, but it's just really hard to step to. It's really hard to look at that culture through today's lens. Um, it is hard for me uh, with lyrics like show you my explosion, sweet 16. Uh, Body and soul, I give to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, body and soul, I go crazy. Sweet 16 and leather boots. Like these, there's not much to this at all, lyrically. Uh, um, and whatever there is, is entirely offensive. But like you said, um, you know, at some point, dumbass dudes were told what should have been obvious. That they were taking advantage of little girls and uh, that that's not right. And I would be very curious what Iggy Pop has to say about the song now, but um, I think it's, I think it's problematic. Uh, the song itself does rock. You're right. It's got a cowbell. It's got some old seventies guitar shreds. It's a little muddy in the production. Um, but uh, you know, I do appreciate the seventies sleaze it's going for. Um, but unfortunately when sleaze meets the reality of the vocals, it it's, 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 it's frustrating. It's a frustrating song for me. I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you guys. I knew everything Eric said tonight I predicted. And I actually, when listening to the song, picturing him clutching his pearls made me like the song more. <laughs> I was like, all right, let me get my bingo card out. You know, up. Oh, yep. Problematic. All right, there we go. That's me. You got it. You got me. You got me. You got me. Although I did. I, I did make some pretty tasteless jokes before you got back on the mic there, Steve. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't a total win for you. But yeah, not crazy about this song. <laughs> you you only did that just so it couldn't be a total win. The the game the game continues, Eric. You know we we know where each other we know where each other stands, you and I, and I would say that our relationship could be summed up as. Some weird sin. Gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard a bass line take more of a walk than the bass line in this song? I say no. I mean, that's straight from my notes. That uh, It's another catchy guitar riff with a bass line that wants to go for a stroll. Um, so, yeah. You're on to something there, Steve. But continue. But th this, this bass line really is strolling. It's... Uh, it's you know we've got we've got our bass lines that walk their dog, we got the bass lines that go for a, a bike ride, we got the bass lines to get in their car, they drive down the street to get a cup of coffee, and then you got the bass lines that are walking down the street, 
in some kind of uh, some kind of platform shoes that you can't pull off yourself, but you respect the man that can. And they're going into a 1977 porno theater. That's this baseline. I'm crazy about it. It's it's very good, very good. Um, this song is yeah, it's fantastic. It's I would say like this one, if you want to look for layers in production, it doesn't sound anything like the idiot, but I'm seeing some similar production techniques as far as layering, layering uh, ideas on there. I like mm-hmm. Bowie's backing vocals. Um, he's really uh, hitting those Motown, uh, some of those Motown uh, things. And to the point where sometimes his backing vocals take the lead and I'm good with that. Eric, I would say I would say that those back those bo- backing vocals are amazing. There, I, I I wrote down backing vocals with exclamation point, and I think when I listen to this song, that the the harmonies that they pull off with those backup vocals, I think that's what uh, David and Mick were trying to do with their dancing in the street <laughs> cover, and they failed miserably. But in their head, I think they thought they sounded as good as this song does in the chorus. And yeah, some word sin does have some like kinky connotations to it. But, uh, you know, ultimately it's like when things get too straight, I can't bear it. It's just like, you know, I think I think we can all fit into our. Our, you know, trajectory is OK, but, you know, I, I, I think all of our all of our, uh, you know, hairs bristle a little bit when things get too too normy. But this is like Iggy Pop, as soon as he sees anything in semblance of normal, He's backing away um, uh, like a scared cat. And uh, I do appreciate that, that perspective. And um, so I do like the, uh, like the lyrics of the song. And yeah, I, I think the song's pretty, pretty great. I think it's got a good atmosphere to it. I mean, baseline aside, we've already kind of covered that ground. I think it has just a really catchy guitar riff as, uh, uh, along with that. It's got this jumpy jauntiness to it um, that has a little bit of swagger to that walking into a porno uh, that you described it. Um, You know, you guys were talking about the production value. I think it actually has like this kind of garagey lo-fi feel to it. Um, And this one in particular does make me feel that uh, the strokes comparison and just how influential, you know, Iggy is on some of those, kind of uh bands the bands that came out during that uh the late the early 2000s you know the strokes the hives um you're you're definitely seeing the through line on these particular songs but it's a good one i'd say you see that on the overall feel of the production of the song and low finest i think that many indie rock post rock whatever rock bands uh oh a debt to this album on this song on this album on, on this song in particular that guitar riff is definitely right out of the uh, josh homey sure booklet, i think that yep I 
guarantee you they played this track live when they toured for that post-pop depression. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with what you just said. Fantastic. And I'm sure that we're all going to 100% agree that the next track is also great. The Passenger. like little guitar chord I was like what oh and I had a moment because I was just I was a dumbass I had never heard Iggy Pop's version of this before but my wife is a big Susie and the Banshees fan and I have many times throughout our music listening sessions heard her cover of this song and it's great she does a great cover and I thought I thought that that was her song um, so when I heard this I was like oh shit and I immediately ran in <laughs> that's a Nicky Pop song and she's like yeah so uh anyways i didn't have a moment there but um this song is great it's 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 catchy as hell it's got it's got one of the most identifiable melodies on this album as far as there is a a earworm in this song um and uh you know the song itself is uh it's very basic lyrics about just being in a car, being in a train, and just looking at the city go by, and, be, and just appreciating the beauty of all this stuff you're seeing at a fast pace. Um, and Iggy Pop has said in an interview before about it being written uh, when he was driving around North America and Europe in uh, Bowie's car, and he, he, didn't, he couldn't drive, so he was just there, and he was sitting and looking. So you could, you could interpret that as him also feeling like almost like a hanger on where the whole world's happening and he's seeing it, but only because he's kind of attached to Bowie and they're going on this, they're this journey together. Um, and that's how he's seeing the world. So, uh, there's not much to dig into the song past that appreciating the world going by. Um, but I, I like the song a lot. I think it's awesome. It's contender for number one for me, but it's, it's, it's good. I do think that there is a kind of a, a mystic quality of some sort of being a passenger and observing things as they go by you and, and not having to be the one in control and being able to absorb what you're seeing. Um, and also it reminds me of high school. As I've said before, I didn't get my license until I was 20 years old. So Mark drove me everywhere and I was the passenger. So it works on a couple <laughs> levels for me. <laughs> that is true. And if I want to take that, if I want to take that one step further, this song has some connection to the doors. Did you read that Mark? I did that. It was like a Jim Morrison poem or something like that, right? Yeah, there's some, there's some kind of Jim Morrison uh, connection here. Yeah, there, there's there's Jim Morrison. There's a Jim Morrison influence to this track, which makes me appreciate it even more. And I forgot to mention for Less for Life, 
that song gives me big doors vibes too. the way they put that track together. Um, so if you want to go back in time, listen to less for life again, it reminds Steve of the doors, but speaking of the passenger, I think it's a great song. Yeah. We've heard it in many commercials. I think many people have heard this song many times and didn't know it was an Iggy pop song. I probably heard it somewhere before I knew it was Iggy pop. Just, um, uh, we'll, we'll see the city's ripped backsides. Uh, Jim Morrison, uh, in the Lords of the new creatures, um, it, it, which is some of his poetry. And maybe you guys would know if they actually turned that into a song or if it was just spoken word, but, uh, Inevitable progress is made towards the beginning. There is no difference in terminals as we slice through cities whose ripped backsides present a moving pictures of windows, signs, streets, buildings, which fits perfectly in the theme of the song. So, yes. And also uh, Iggy Pop's tone of singing is pretty Morrison-esque. They both didn't like to wear shirts. Uh, lyrically, there's a lot of stream of consciousness going on. Those two guys were cut from the similar cloth. And I think you see a little bit of that, of that in this track. Uh, I love those uh, that first rumble of the drums coming in at the very start of this track. And towards the end, uh, Hunt Sales has some very strategically placed cymbal crashes. Uh, there's a couple times on this album where Hunt Sales has really stood out to me. Is a, uh, a drummer that doesn't try to do too much. He never goes crazy, but he picks his moments well. I, I, I like that. I think that this song is just put together uh, extremely well. Um... I probably heard the uh, looking back in 1995 when um, such hits as Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and Kiss from a Rose were all over the airwaves. It was only natural for a person of my, my age to go out and pick up the Batman Forever soundtrack. And on that Batman Forever soundtrack, we had the lead singer of In Excess, Michael Hutchins, doing a cover of the song. So I probably heard it first there. Um, and looking, it's good. It's a good cover. It's a really good cover. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, I can't shy away any any connection to uh, Mr. Mojo Ryzen. Um, I'm going to obviously perk my ears up a little bit and listening to a recent episode of uh the 27 club which is an offshoot of disgraceland by this podcaster by the name of jake brennan who's doing seasons related to rock stars that all died at the age of 27 season one was Jimi hendrix and season two is all about jim morrison and he talks about uh, the Doors playing a concert in Detroit, and who was in the audience? But our friend Iggy Pop. And so uh, uh, he was absolutely influenced by that man, and it uh, it gives me a lot of pride and joy because as I first started to really go deep into music, the Doors were kind of my gateway drug, and um, I still love to go back to that band every now and then. They're uh, even though some people write them off as being nothing but a, a drunken revelry, I, I think that they uh, just, you can't deny how many hits that band has. Oh my God. But I digress. Um, this song is, uh, it's really well, uh, well, well crafted. Um, and for the life of me, I don't think I've ever heard the Susie and the Banshees version. Um, apparently that's the touchstone uh, cover version that you need to hear because they bring in some horns and uh, really make it their own 
but uh, the song it's great. is great. It's great, and, it, and it's, it's the most 80s video you'll ever see, also. It's, it's fantastic. Check it out. Uh, the, idiot, the, the, the video made me angry, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's, it reminded me of a, a New Order video that I also don't like. A certain, I like many things from the 80s, but these 80s videos where they try to work in some kind of like pogo rhythm visuals to the drum beat I don't like the drummer Anyhow. like dips his are you speaking ill of the true faith video because that thing is a masterpiece <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah this, in this video the drummer dips his mallets in red paint and, and drums on the camera with red paint mallets I I, I I do not like New Order. I do not that like That is fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I am a huge, I am a huge Joy Division fan. As much of a Joy Division fan I am is as much of a not New Order fan I am. I don't know how it worked out that way, but it did. How could you... There's, there's, there, there's some albums by New Order that, are, that I can't listen to. I agree with you, but I don't know. They're, they're, uh, they're really uh, rather fantastic. I mean, how could you listen to Power, Corruption, and Lies and say it's bad? Like, that album is, is, is fucking solid. But okay. Every week, to each his own. To each his own. Uh, we'll find out in season three. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out in season three where you... Clockwork Orange, me, make me listen to all those records as we discussed, <laughs> which I I don't know how I drew this, the short straw. It was, you know, you're either going to make me listen to all the New Order albums, we're either going to make uh, Eric listen to all of the... Leonard Skinner albums? Leonard Skinner albums, yes. Or we're going to make Mark listen to the uh, entire I'll Be Sure discography. <laughs> Which is weird. I didn't know he had such a passionate disdain for I'll Be Sure. And uh, that's Short only a few season. records. Short season. Nope. It's me. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. Uh, tonight. Tonight.
Now, uh, one of the wonderful side effects of this podcast season was recording The Idiot, and that got me to just say, hey, life is too short. I want to listen to Lust for Life now. And so I really started digging into Lust for Life. I can't remember the first time I listened to this album. Uh, it, was it for the podcast? It might have been. I'm sure I heard it in the record store once or twice. I never sat down and just listened to it. Man, first time I heard this song uh, that I know of, which was earlier this year. Is that when we recorded the Idiot, by the way? Was that last year? Shit, man. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it all runs together. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Anyways, uh, I, I've, listened, I've listened to this song maybe over 100 times uh, in the last 12 months, and I was just gobsmacked by the the song craft, the earnestness of it, the, 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 the vocal capabilities of everybody involved, the high highs it hits, the romanticism despite what the song is about, uh, everything about it. I absolutely adored it. The fact that I liked the Monkey Island Clipso version that David Bowie did quite a bit made me like the original even more. I like both versions, even though they're wildly different. And uh, I can't believe it. I think this is, I think this is one of the, this is probably in my top 100 songs of all time. I really, really dig it. I got some more things to say, but one of you guys can, can tell me what you feel about it. When I first saw that the fact that we were going to be talking about Lust for Life, um, and I saw that we were going to be talking about uh, the original versions that Bowie, for good or ill, um, put his own spin on. Um, I, I approached this song with a little bit of trepidation because although the Tina Turner, David Bowie duet is not offensive, it's, I, I would argue it's not great, but it's still not a, um, it is not really a good song, but it pleases me to listen to it much like I know that I should not drink uh, a Sparks, a, a, a alcoholic energy drink, especially at the age of 39. But every once in a while, I might run to the 7-Eleven and grab one still. Do they still exist? Steve, do you have a ton of Sparks in your basement? Because they, they made those illegal in like, like 10 years ago. Was it Sparks or Four Loco? Not going to listen. I'm, <laughs> I'm not on trial here on multiple levels. I am not on trial here. My point is that sometimes sickly syrupy things are still what the soul craves. Um, that's my opinion of tonight. Go on. So, yeah, I think that there's a time and place. Uh, as I think I called for uh, tonight, I think every now and then on a hot day, you do enjoy a Bartles and James. But if you want to live the high life and drink like the good stuff with your friends during special occasions, you're not going to pull out a... Uh, Zima and a Freshka to you know celebrate the the good times those special occasions. Um, so this particular song, when it uh, hit my ears for the very first time, when I heard this in preparation for the episode, I was wildly surprised of how consistently strong it is all throughout. Um, I think that David Bowie he took this idea and decided to water it down and diluted it to a level that uh, you can't really even taste the original. Um, and adding Tina Turner to the mix, uh, 
for whatever reason. Um, it, I feel that it works if that's what he was going for as kind of a very sappy love song. But, you know, there's clearly some despair and tragedy in uh, Iggy Pop's version that I certainly am a little bit more at home with. Um, and uh, musically, it, it takes you on a couple different journeys. And it, it is such a strong song that it takes you by surprise because if you're first exposed to Bowie's version, you may be tiptoeing into this one thinking, oh God, here we go. Let's see what happened. And then you're, you come out the other side of the cave going, wow, that was much, 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 much better um, than what you kind of expected. That was my experience with this song. And uh, Eric, tell me about yours. Right, yeah, uh, and I and I mentioned it on the tonight episode because I did listen to this version. I wanted to compare the two when we did that, so I kind of broke my rule a little bit just so I can compare the two um, and listened ahead just to this track. Well, and, and neighborhood threats, of course. But um, yeah, the Iggy Pop version. You're right. It is. It's fun, but it's tragic. The whole like opening minute is this swelling of uh, '50s rock backing stuff and like him narrating this story, which is very much like leader of the pack and these old like doo-wop songs. Um, and it's about like, you know, a girlfriend dying of a heroin overdose turning blue, which also is the name of a song later on. So, you know, the nerd in me loves that thematic connection, but, um, and then it's like this, you know, she's dying tonight. So he's, he's going to be with her tonight. And it's this tragic goodbye. Um, and, uh, yeah, Iggy Pop's version is awesome. It goes from that Motown intro to a uh, a very swooping, catchy rock ballad, um, but understated, understated rock ballad, which I really like. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Bowie one made a discerned, we talked about it, but made an effort to cut out that whole girlfriend overdosing and just making it as a, as, as a couple kind of loving each other for just one night and saying goodbye. And it's a completely different song. And as much as I made fun of it, after we record that episode, it is still to this day stuck in my head. <laughs> any, any time the sun comes out and I grab a beer and go in my backyard and bask in it, I just hear those, those Calypso drums and uh, everything's groovy, baby. Everything's groovy. Um, but this is far superior. I The dark undertones, the actual story of the song, and um, Iggy's vocal consistency on it is fantastic. It's a it's a really great track. Yeah, his vocal consistency on it is good. David Bowie's backup vocals on it are just phenomenal. Uh, the he has some backup vocalizations, some soaring. Uh, it's like laying a foundation for uh, Iggy's actually singing words in the foreground. And um, yeah, I just I think everything mixes together so well and there's another cool thing about this track is that there are shades of the berlin trilogy there's some um there's something like low icy keyboards in in the back if you if you pay attention to them in the mix that uh, it's pretty neat that we have kind of a romantic is not really the word but a ballad a love ballad a dark ballad a whatever's going on in this song you know living in the moment song and amongst all that these emotions You've got some of those icy low keyboards buried in there. Uh, either Gardner or Carlos gets a pretty cool little mini guitar solo. 
and um, the bass the bass is quietly doing a lot too. It's a, I think it's a great track, and I, I get the feeling this is one of those songs. And they were in the like this album was recorded in eight days, I think. Or no, that was the idiot. This album they recorded this album fairly quickly still, and I imagine they recorded this track. They were just like, oh, we did it, we got it. It just seems like one where everything clicked, and uh, I just upper tier work. I I just love it. Great song. And I got I got to say, in these weird times this year, it has been one I've returned to and the Bowie version, which is just kind of like a warm blanket. Uh, the lyrics are kind of just very in your face, just saying tonight everything's going to be all right. Well, sometimes even if you know that's not true, that's what you just want to hear said to you. So uh, with every day being a horror show, the troops marching in the streets, the pandemic, uh, you know. You know, the, the reckoning of Rachel injustice, which is a good kind of horror show, but still doesn't it's a uh, it's painful to get to where we need to be. This year has been insane. And I think a track like this is something that every once in a while you don't mind hearing. It's true. It's true. It is kind of like a breath of fresh air. Um, uh, during those moments where you feel like there's just nothing but despair around you. So here comes success. <laughs> This song, uh, man, I tell you, every time that after, when tonight ends and I'm just like, whoa, that was something. The opening guitar riff on this, the little, just little uptick guitar riff on this song kicks in and I am automatically in the mood for this song. It's not jarring of a, uh, I think it's actually really good sequencing. It doesn't jar me, but it, it definitely, this song has the ability to course correct my mood quite quickly into whatever the song wants to do. I, I think tonight and this track and well, my goodness, I mean, uh, before before tonight, you had the passenger, the passenger tonight, followed by here comes success is right up there with the the ruiner, the becoming. I do not want this trilogy of quality music that you find on the downward spiral. Uh, very, very rarely do you get three songs in a row that I think all sound different, but all can just be placed so well together. And I think those three tracks do that. As far as like a trilogy, I, I love that connection. And um, also just sequencing, I'm a sequencing nerd. I think sequencing is super important on an album. And so when you go from Passenger to Tonight, and then if you were listening to it on record, that's the end of the record, you gotta flip it over. And then you start with something strong like Success. Well, that's good. It's like, it's not like, hey, this isn't a fresh restart, buddy. We're gonna continue. That, 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 that middle powerhouse, is, is is often overlooked and very important. And I appreciate that in the middle of a record. So go on. Sorry. Well, you were reaffirming what I was saying. And uh, to be clear, lyrically, no, there's not a much connection here. I just meant quality of song and uh, the pacing of the songs they managed to mix together. That just works for me quite well. Um, success 
does something that I like, which is there are certain songs that you can put on when you're getting to work on Monday or when you're leaving work on Friday. And somehow it works both ways. Success is one of those tracks. It's a hard trick to pull off. Usually, you know, usually something that's going to fuel you for a, a hell week of work or what's going to propel you away from that hellscape uh, is not the same song. Success can pull it off for me. Uh, I'm a big fan of some of the harmonized guitars that go on in this song. And they're almost up there with some of my favorite Judas Priest 70s harmonized guitars, which is a, a tough place to get to. But there's when those when the, the guitar riffs lock in together on this track, they do it perfectly. And there's also a lot of uh, call and response going on for the ages. The call and response in this track is wonderful. Um, I don't feel like they stuff too much into this track, yet it sounds very full, which kind of goes on on a lot of this record. Not overly produced, not too much, not too many instruments in this thing, but still there's enough going on to where you can focus your attention over here, over there, and hear different little things each time, including a cowbell that has returned. I'm a big fan of this uh, that's, song. That's uh, another agreement from me. Um, this song is uh, catchy as shit. The call and response cheering section from the Sales Brothers is uh, enough to bring a smile to my face. As uh, Jack Napier, as the Joker would say, um, and I really appreciate uh, Bowie essentially asserting his independence, and uh, just I think it was written in the Pushing Head of the Dame blog, which is kind of funny that he is essentially saying, "Here comes success," because I mean, my God, I'm pulling out home runs here. And then when you kind of look at how his career then uh, developed after this album, uh, our friend Iggy Pop hit the skids where uh, thankfully he had friends in low places like David Bowie who made sure to cover his songs so that way he could get some royalty fees. Um, so it is ironic that he's essentially saying here comes success and uh right around the corner someone said oh not so fast my friend not so fast and uh yeah great song keeps me uh keeps me going gets the the cheering section ramped up and uh the fact that duran duran eventually covered this is uh something something else so there you go success Yeah, you guys, uh, I don't have much to add. Um, you know, I do like the lyrics are a very uh, sarcastic take on success. You know, here comes my car. Here comes my Chinese rug. Here comes success. That Chinese rug, <laughs> that Chinese rug line makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know. And just, just the idea, just the idea of him saying, uh, you know, here comes my Chinese rug. And then, you know, like Carlos Alomar and David Bowie singing it back to him is just hilarious yeah. to me. Um, yeah. Uh, anyways, the uh, the rest of the song, he goes crazier and crazier. And there's not a lot of empirical crazy in the lyrics. You can just tell by what he's saying. It's plain bizarre. Here comes my face out of the crowd. Here comes the zoo. He's He starts losing it. And uh, just kind of that double-edged sword of success, I guess. But it's definitely meant to be a, a sarcastic song about um you know finally reaching stardom and 
and it's a great one. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, that uh, that section at the end, Mark, that you're talking about, the where you just start saying like, "I'm going to hop like a frog," you're like, "Hooray, <laughs> success!" It's absurd. And then at the end, where there's a buildup, and they just all go, "Oh shit!" I just uh, uh, there's that there's a level of of fun there you don't get in a lot of records. I I, I dig it. And then it goes right into a track called Turn Blue, which I haven't done the uh, the Anderson lyrical interpretation, but that can't be very fun. Turn Blue. Crash is beautiful. You know how soft she is. Just what it feel like. Oh, I'm so far away from her. Jesus. So this is the second time in this album we're talking about turning blue. Uh, on this track, there's some fantastic backup vocalizations. Icy keyboards return. And that's all I really have to say. It's a very slow song. It's kind of it's kind of a spoken word. Um, Nighthawks at the diner kind of thing. I don't dislike it. I just don't have a lot to say about it because... And many times listening to this album, I will admit, if I'm going to skip one track, it's this one. Eric, how do you feel about this song? Same. I I only listened to it once. I As much as I like my Tom Waits, uh, you know, I mostly like it when he, he puts his rambles into con- lyrics within the confines of a song. And um, the seven-minute bluesy... I mean, the band's doing like a, a bar blues take kind of thing, and it's... They're totally, um, totally, uh, absolutely committed. They're nailing that, that kind of sound. Um, and he's just kind of rambling over it. I think it starts with him saying like, oh, the black girl in the back, she'll do or something, which doesn't, which is, you know, necessarily a great way to start a song. Um, and, uh, you know, over it, he's just, he's just ranting. I mean, these aren't, this isn't spoken word poetry. It's stream of consciousness. There's not a lot to to break apart there. Um, there's stuff that gets you, you know, like they're stepping on our hearts. Don't forget me. And um, allusions to, um, and as pushing ahead, the name said, there's allusions to either shooting himself or shooting up at the end. And given that tonight also has a lyric about turning blue for somebody who died from a heroin overdose, that's probably what it, the connection is there. Um, but uh, not an interesting song for me. Um, yeah, the, the the spoken word rants don't don't do it don't do it don't do it for me. Um, I need a little bit more effort than that. So not crazy about this one, Mark. Yeah, I agree with you. This is the first part of the record where um, the record sort of skips for me, and um, maybe it's because of how long the song goes on for. Um, I, I think it maybe would have been better as just kind of like a interlude. Apparently, this is one of the older tracks that you know survived from the idiot, and um, so it, it was been around. It was originally called "Moving On," um, but yeah, it's just I, I get what he's trying to do, kind of that extended young Americans kind of soul thing that you would get live by a lot of soul singers who you know, start vamping a little bit uh, with the audiences. They're all sweaty and you got someone coming out with the with the cape and 
um, doing their thing, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to work for me. Um, there's nothing that kind of hooks me into it. Perhaps if I saw Iggy Pop in this phase of his career playing this live, I would maybe have a little different opinion to it. Um, but as it stands on the record, um, it's just maybe would be one of those gems that would be a little bit more uh, energetic performed live rather than a canned studio version of it. I don't know. That's just kind of the feeling that I have for this song. Yeah, I can I can see how it would it would pay off better live. Um, I do like the like oh mama I shot myself up down up down. I'm amused by that. Um, yeah, not doesn't do a whole lot for me. And that's interesting, Mark, that you say that it started out in the idiot because it does kind of start out similar to that uh, track on the idiot where he's like, hey, what happened to Bobby? Oh yeah. All right. Well, how about Sam? You know that the. Uh, they, 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 I can imagine they probably said, hmm, can't do this twice in one album. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that, that, that song you're talking about, that's the one he's talking about, the Stooges. And that, yeah. after the first 45 seconds, it turns into a real song. Like, and that's a good, yeah, that song's uh, a good, I, I like that yeah. song. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, turn blue. Well, you know, they can't all be singers. Moving on. Neighborhood Threat. It's so it's it's awesome. Uh, the song itself, like, is and I had first heard the Bowie version, but the song itself is, uh, you know, it's just about uh, it's a paranoid song. It's about you know feeling out of place with your neighbors, um, and uh, you know feeling like they're suspecting you of stuff and 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 feeling dangerous. And I think it's great. I think I think this song rocks. I think it has a guitar line that transcends decades and like could be found in like lo-fi indie '90s rock. It's 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 good. And this song rocks. It's a you know it's under under four minutes. It's a it's a fun one. It, it, uh, I think I laugh at the Bowie version now like the Bowie version we've joked about it being the West Side Story version of the song and it's so now giving a deep dive into this song this song feels authentic to me and I think Iggy Pop really felt that way and uh and then cut to the Andrew Lloyd Webber version of Neighborhood Threat and Bowie's uh snapping his fingers down the street singing it uh hilarious um and I enjoy it for the camp value, but this is legitimately a good song. I, I, I enjoy this version. Yeah, I like I like it a lot. Um, I think the production, the levels are really good. I, Bowie totally bungled his version. I don't know what he was thinking. 
the original's near perfect. I just uh, very odd choice for. I mean, yeah, you know, you got royalties for for Iggy. That's good. Um, something you know, I really the, there's there there's like a Tom Petty esque guitar lick going on on top of this song, and then underneath it, there's kind of a chord progression that sounds like "Don't Fear the Reaper." It's a really interesting mix. Uh, there, there's during the second verse, there's amazing vocalizations going on by Bowie. Again, he's shading things here, and I think David Bowie. You know, we've done a podcast about him. I'm not sure if you guys know, but when he just wants to vocalize and then just go, you know, scat, it almost always works. He knows when that when he can do that and pull it off great. Um, that just the guy's hell of a vocalist. Hat tip to David Bowie. Never talked about him before. But uh, he could have had a career in backup vocalization and maybe piano playing. And if you listen closely on this track, towards the end, there's some wild distorted guitar work that sounds like something that they uh, further explored on Scary Monsters, I think. Um, so I agree with both of you that Iggy Pop's version is a hell of a lot stronger than Bowie's version off of Let's Dance. Um, and in fact... It- in the recollections of my mind, even though we've talked about Let's Dance and I've heard it a couple times, I I still struggle to find it to be uh, memorable. Uh, Bowie's version, that is. Um, that was on tonight. Well, Neighborhood Threat was on tonight. Are you sure? Yeah, you know what Positive. you're thinking of, Mark. I know what song you're thinking of. You're thinking of Criminal Mind. Yes, they're similar songs. Criminal World. Cr- criminal World. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Okay, yeah. Correction, you're right. I thought that uh, neighborhood threat. He he had at least one on uh, Let's Dance, but you're right. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks for keeping me honest, as always. Uh, man, tonight really did seem like it was uh, Iggy Pop like love affair. Um, you know, so uh, pushing ahead of the dame, uh, I think that Steve is spot on about the Blue Oyster Cult and um, Tom Petty references. Um, you know, just kind of that late 70s rock feel um, that you didn't really think that Iggy Pop would have any sort of interest in um, those type of bands. He was more interested in, you know, uh, the punk scene, the Ramones. Um, and of course, just having uh, David Bowie kind of on his shoulder, um, you know, kind of keeping him a little bit within kind of the guardrails. Um, I'm not as over the moon about this particular song. I think it's a good song. It's certainly much better than Bowie's version. Um, it's just one of those things that it didn't necessarily hook me. But when I hear it, I'm like, no, this is fine enough. It's not like a skippable song, but it's not necessarily like an instant classic. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. I am just sort of indifferent about pop's version as well. Seeing how it is much better than Bowie's, but it's just one of those things that uh, there's such other strong record uh, songs in this record. And as we get towards the end is kind of where I start to see the qualities start to kind of dip a little bit. Uh, Not to say that it makes the album bad. It's just, I'm seeing that uh, there's certainly stronger uh, returns on the beginning half of this record. And as we start to tail down, it's he's getting a little exhausting his creative output a little bit. I'll just say that. And and maybe that's why I like this song is, is the last, well, most of this album is great, but the last half of side two, um, 
is a dip in quality, but when Neighborhood Threat comes on, I feel like it reinvests me for a minute. So mm. I, I feel like it's a shine. I feel like it's a shining moment on side two. So. Well, let's finish talking about the record with "Fall in Love with Me." So I do prefer this song a little bit over Neighborhood Threat. Um, it uh, apparently, um, I'm sure Eric can give us a little bit of backstory, but um, things were getting a little uh, samey, a little boring. So um, I don't know if this is where it began with David Bowie saying, hey, let's everyone switch places by one and everyone move to the left. And now you're the drummer, I'm the keyboard player and this and that. Um, so we had Ricky Gardner playing behind the drum kit on this one. Um, Hunt Sales is uh, playing the bass. Tony Sales is playing the guitar. Um, and then Carlos Alomar is like, I'm still going to play guitar. We're not fucking around. And it's kind of got that little like little little, little swagger there to it. Um, Actually, I do like this song, though. I, I will say that uh, even though I just said the quality starts to fall off a little bit, this one does kind of reel me back in and um, just them having fun, and it still holds a lot of melody. Um, uh, Eric, do you have anything else to flesh this song out a little bit? Yeah, I, I uh, based on the reading I've done... It's unclear whether Carlos Alomar was playing with them live or he went and dubbed his stuff later to add a little bit more lead guitar and then Bowie uh, adding some Oregon work. Um, But, I mean, this song is good and it is better than Turning Blue. Um, It's very similar in approach lyrically because they're both ad-libbed. They're both ad-lib songs from um, Iggy Pop. This one, actually, he's singing on it. And this is his most Jim Morrison moment uh, vocally, I think, on this album, which is clearly uh, uh, inspired by Jim Jim Morrison pretty much throughout the whole album. Um, and I, I mean, his, his, his vocals are fine. He's vamping a bit, which I, I always love a, a good vamp session from a singer. Um, so I do, I do like this song. I just like Neighborhood Thread a little bit better. It's a little bit more focused. Um, there are some musical elements of this that are a little bit more experimental, which I really appreciate. So I didn't mean to imply this album ends with a dud. I just meant side one was a little bit stronger than side two. Um, But I do like the song. Uh, And yeah, I like to imagine Bowie said, Hey, I saw Eno pass out cards where everybody had to switch instruments. Let's do that too, guys. And, uh, and we got this song. Um, Yeah. It's it, 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 at least this song has, uh, 
a clear like kind of sense of direction, even though it's pretty much a jam session the whole way through. Um, I like it. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a jam, but that suits what Iggy Pop can do when it comes to improvisational lyrics, which he did do. I mean, Bowie, Bowie took his improvisational lyric style that he sometimes does and applied it to heroes quite a bit, which we'll talk about in our next episode. And I think it's very in the forefront on this track. Everybody's kind of jamming and riffing. And uh, yeah, it does sound like Carlos came back and said, hey, I'm going to do some actual guitar work on top of this because there is some pretty, pretty solid guitar uh, wailing going on throughout it. Uh, and I don't know who's playing the keyboards on it, but it has some more of the, the Candy Cane Iceland low keyboards uh, pouring around some of the uh, the rhythm section. And I think it sets an interesting foundation for a type of lyric I like, which is this this is like a, a semi-romantic but self-effacing uh, delivery of, uh, you know, having, you know, please fall in love with me. And, uh, you know, a guy that uh, he, he, there's something there to where maybe a girl might fall for him. But the way he's begging for it's just kind of pathetic. That's a. I don't know if it's because it reminds me of Eric, but that's a, a song style that I like. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. Anyhow, I think it's a it's not the strongest song to end with, but they've done so much in this record already that I'll uh, I'll 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 deal with it. All right. Well, what do we all rate this Iggy Pop album? Mark, I give it a solid four out of five. Um, I mean, I think it's almost a, uh, a near perfect record. Um, it, it, it turns a little blue, I guess, uh, during turn blue where, um, maybe if I was in a, uh, coming up at the same time that this record was coming out and, you know, being able to maybe witness it live, I probably would have said perfect record all the way through. Um, but this this album for me, and I have revisited The Idiot, by the way. So um, I think The Idiot is a very, very strong record. Very strong. Um, but this one-two punch is unbelievable that these two records came out in the same year. I mean, that is a ton of creative just force and energy. Um, and apparently, I think this was the last time the two of those folks worked together um, in the truer sense of really collaborating. Um, so my hats are yeah. off to Iggy pop and David Bowie for really putting this thing out. These two records out pretty much back to back. Um, it is an achievement and it's something that I've slept on for the most of my, uh, my life of just kind of thinking Iggy pop was just this, uh, cartoon character that was a, um, supporting, actor in the story of David Bowie. And uh, I've realized that that is not true. The, the man is certainly de deserves all the uh, accolades and the, um, the influence that he's essentially wrought in his career. And uh, yeah, this, this podcast essentially has made me appreciate Iggy pop by leaps and bounds. Yeah, same, same here. I, uh, I always knew that I, I hadn't, you know, I liked Iggy Pop, but I wasn't a fan. I really liked the song Candy when I was younger. 
I like the idea of Iggy Pop and all the bands he influenced that I liked. I lust for life when I got turned on to that in the nineties. I thought that was a cool song, but the pot that the guy said before, and like Mark just said, this podcast, one of the greatest side effects besides being an excuse to talk to you guys was how much I just, just fell in love with these two records that we covered. And, um, like, I, I just think this is a great album. Um, I think Iggy pop is a, he's kind of a, a thread that holds a lot of things together of other artists that I like. And he gets a little bit more bonus points for that. Um, as far as this record goes though, specifically, I am giving it the hallowed five out of five. Whoa. I, uh, I, they're, the term blue is a slight misstep and sure fall in love with me. Isn't the greatest closer, but the high highs are so high. They're just incredibly high, just sky high. And, um, I could put this next to station, to station or scary monsters. And, you know, I'm not saying they're all exactly as good as each other, but at a certain point you, you, you cross the threshold to where I can say you're a five out of five. And uh, I think Lust for Life makes that mark uh, just between the history of the album, quality of the album. The fact that it follows the idiot makes me just as impressed because how do you do that two in one year? Like Mark said, um, and just so many of these songs I've listened to over and over again this year, maybe next year there'll be a little bit more Regency by a little less Regency bias and I'll think differently, but I don't know, man, like I've listened to this album a lot and to listen to an album a lot, it has to be good so i'm giving it the five out of five well my initial rating was going to be uh three out of five uh, 3.5 out of five because i do i gave the idiot a four out of five and i like that one i do in my based on what i like about music i like the idiot better um i just like the uh experimental synthy production a little bit better but this album is so strong. It's undeniable. It gets the four out of five from me. Um, uh, even if it doesn't have those, those things that are kind of more my sensibilities, it is undeniably like almost hit after hit a fantastic edgy pop rock album. Um, and uh, with one slight misstep, doesn't matter. It's, it's a very important album and you're right. Imagine being a music fan that was following Iggy Pop in the '70s. These two albums, and then and then if you sidestep to Bowie's career, you were good to go. That's all you need. Jesus Christ! So many, so many good albums. And in and, and Bowie's career alone, plus Biggie Pop, you're getting all those good albums. But then if you just think of the Low Trilogy era, era when you have those three albums plus these two albums, that's five records that are just top tier, and also, yeah, the low trilogy is pretty experimental. And then the idiots fairly experimental. But then you got this album in the midst of it all, which has elements of those other records, but it's definitely a rock album. And I think it's pretty cool that all five of those records came out around each other. And this could be your palate cleanser if you were kind of like, all right, I need something more straightforward. But still, I uh, want it to be of that quality. Just uh, good stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's it's great. I'm crazy about it. I'm right there with you guys with as far as Iggy Pop goes. This this project has has made me a fan. And uh, and I and I think that's great. And um, 
I did not regret the hours I spent pouring into this or the idiot. They're fantastic records. And it's true. This, this was the last hurrah for them as a collaborative partners. Um, they would do stuff, a little like song here and there on blah, blah, blah. Or right after this in 1980, they did uh, a little, a little song on a crazy album where the Stooges, like half the Stooges were back together and, they were all drunk and there was guns walking around like guys walking around with guns in their cabin and Bowie showed up to do lyrics for one little song and just wasn't the same. This was the end of their partnership and it, what a way to go out. Fantastic. And, you know, and, and Iggy Pop, uh, they remained, uh, they weren't best friends like all the time, but I think there was a, a mutual affinity there until the, uh, the end of uh, Bowie's life. That uh, I imagine is still around this day on Iggy's side, considering what they did together and what he did for him, and yeah, oh, sure. pretty cool relationship. Yeah, when Bowie died, Iggy, Iggy, Iggy said some very kind things as far as you know their friendship and then what Bowie did for his career. So, uh, further listening, I do suggest that uh, people check out that post-pop depression album with Josh Homey, uh, produced and co-wrote. I think it's a it's a fairly good record, and you can definitely see there kind of almost a sequel to what's going on here. And also, there's a uh, they put out a double live album from that tour, which I think is pretty fun. If you're a Queens of the Stone Age fan, if you want to hear Josh playing some of the hits like this and China Girl, um, Lust for Life, you can check him out on that one playing. Playing songs that he was influenced by that came out like a year before he was born. So. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I do second that. Um, well, with that, guys, we are getting close to the end of season two. We only have one more record to analyze, and that would be David Bowie's 1977 album, Heroes. Um, and then after that, we're going to give you a season wrap up of our favorite top 10 Bowie uh, well shit we may even go through the whole fucking 28 uh, discography we may rank them um, but really just talk about maybe our top 5 and then of course our favorite Bowie songs but before we do all of that season wrap up and shake hands for a job well done uh, we're going to talk about David Bowie's Heroes on our very next episode and this has been Mark. Eric. It's been Steve. So the three of us always hope that we brought you closer to pot. Eternal Iggy Pop discography. Uh, your first solo album was yeah, 70, 77's yeah. The Idiot. And how how big a part did David did David Bowie play in in your emergence as a solo artist? Well, I mean, put it this way: before I made that record, I was basically I was a street person. 
in L.A., basically, and I'd been kind of stymied by the entire music business and a, and a really disastrous manager in general and drug problems and uh, drinking and uh, general carousing, you know. So um, at the time, I could have I put together kind of just a stock rock band, something glam, something tasteless, but I didn't want to do that. And uh, it was really timely that he suggested basically two things, getting out of L.A., and, which is great, and, uh, and making an album together, which was a good idea, because I think had, had he not come along with that proposal, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. No. Really? I'd yeah, I'd be playing somewhere, probably in 42nd Street or something, you know, something mm. like that. So it was, it was a good, uh, good stroke, you know.